So it's, um, I think, widely assumed in our culture that um, art and commerce are enemies. Mm. And that if you um, are thinking too much about your business model or um, commercial outcomes that you have sold out or that you're not being a true artist and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I am totally comfortable just saying that's baloney. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is the Benchmark Podcast, where each week we create breakthroughs in the creative lives and businesses of our guests, who are artists, creatives, and small business owners. This week, my guest is Andrew Maxfield, a composer based in Provo, Utah, and a dear friend who I've known for a long, long time, and I'm very excited to have on the show. In today's episode, we talk about the face-off between art and commerce, growing your audience as a composer, and attempt to get Andrew a breakthrough on what he can focus on in his business to get the thing he really wants, which is probably not what you're expecting. This is typically where you'd hear a sponsor message, but since this is a podcast to help promote the Benchmark app, I'll just tell you to go check out the free training that we have for you at benchmark.app. That's B-N-C-H-M-R-K dot app. And learn more about this tool we've built to help people get control over the results of their businesses. All right, we are here with my good friend Andrew Maxfield. I'm so excited to have you on, and thank you for you know the short notice of hey, you want to be a guest on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so Andrew is, I mean, we've known each other for well over a decade, I believe, and Andrew is a very talented composer and writer and consultant and has his hands in a lot of things. But Andrew, why don't you tell me and the audience who you are, what you do, what got you into that stuff, why you love it? Hi, everyone. My name is Andrew, and uh, I have been addicted to two sides of the same puzzle since I was a little kid, which is the uh, one side is the doing creative stuff and the other side is figuring out how that creative stuff meets up with the world. And uh, I started composing when I was, I don't know, five years old or something. I would lie on my stomach on my on the floor of my parents' apartment and draw circles on my mom's staff paper and then hand her my creations and ask her to play them at the piano. And uh, the rumor has it that I went to a, an orchestra concert for young audiences, and um, I told my mom, I want to be the guy with the stick, uh, conductor. And uh, piano lessons was sort of a, a compromise, but that started me on a creative path. And, my, and so my, my mom, who is a flute teacher and, and a musician, nurtured that side. My dad, who also happens to be a good singer, is an entrepreneur, and... Uh, a very clever solver of business problems. And so just by happenstance, because I had the parents that I have, um, I became equally interested in the creative artistic mom side and the entrepreneurial dad side of things. And the really the only skill set that I have is solving little problems like that and figuring out how to communicate about them. And that's basically what I've done for my whole career. And um, when I was an undergrad, I studied music and business. And then later on, I went to business school. And uh, but in the context of arts and nonprofit management. And meanwhile, I was writing 
uh, tons of choral music. And so I've just always been in, in both worlds. Very cool. I think that's why we get along so well, because we're kind of, we both have the artistic and the logical brain going on. And those, when you say like, I like solving problems, that's how I describe everything I do is like, I just find cool problems that are, I think are going to be interesting to solve and maybe help people. And that's what gets me going. <laughs> so it's very, yeah, cool. funny. Uh, it's not I only. was, I was trying to explain to somebody why I don't really like jigsaw puzzles or Sudoku, mm. those kinds of things, because they are problems that have predetermined solutions. Mm. Therefore they are inherently uninteresting. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. I think when I do those kind of puzzles, I quickly solve them and go, well, that wasn't very fun, but you just yeah. know the reason why it's because there's only one way to do it. It's very cool. Um, so talk to me a little bit, talk to us a little bit about, about the creative project or projects you're working on right now. Like where did the idea come from? How'd you get started? What is, what's the problem you're trying to solve right now? Well, the problem I'm trying to solve is building a boutique intellectual property business. In other words, being in business as a composer. And uh, 15 years ago when I was an undergraduate, I started writing choral music just because I like choral music. It makes me smile. Um, and I didn't have a grand vision in mind. I didn't have a big business plan in mind. Um, but the music that I wrote, was ultimately recorded in an album that sold pretty well. And I started having choral directors contact me about pieces that were on the album and saying, hey, can we sing that piece? And I thought, oh, well, I guess I should sell some sheet music. And this little boutique business has grown incrementally over the years. And it took me a little while to come around to the believing that I am a composer in the way that these choral directors thought that I was a composer. I thought, oh, what would I do differently if I thought I was a composer? And that has been um, a learning curve like across every conceivable uh, category. It's like um, developing my chops as a composer. It's developing my email lists with people who buy things from me. It's developing a network with choral directors and orchestral directors and other people that program concert music. It's thinking about the business model and revenue model that works for a boutique intellectual property business. And this is something that I just built along the side organically while doing a variety of other things um, where there already was a business model. And so figuring it out from the ground up is the the grand and exciting mystery that I'm working on. That's very cool. And can relate to that too. I'm creating two new businesses this year while in quarantine. So I, I we've had a lot of good chats over the last few months, which I've appreciated and enjoyed because we're kind of right there, companions on the path, like charging forward. And so it's yeah. very cool to hear all that. The thing I love about talking to other creatives and other business owners is that when I hear people describe what it is they do and, like you said, the problems they solve, sometimes it just turns on a little light bulb in my head of like, I never thought about it that way. I've never framed what I do that way. And 
it's always interesting just to hear people kind of describe what they're working on and what they do. So we talked a little bit about why you do what you do. You're interested in these solving these puzzles, but maybe one other question is, what's kind of the outcome that you care about that's driving your work on your career as a composer, like driving you to create this business, make it successful? What is it that you actually care about? Because maybe it is the actual building of the business, but I feel like one of the big aha moments from my life for the last few years is thinking in outcomes and thinking about what's the desired end result that I really care about that kind of informs or gives some context to why I'm spending two hours today figuring out UTM tags on Google links so that when I have people click on them, I know where they came from, right? Like that's not the outcome that I'm after figuring out and being an expert in UTM links, <laughs> but it leads to the desired outcome of having a successful business that's working, right? So what is that for you? And maybe you have never thought about that before and it's it's okay if you need to take a second, but what's that? No, I've, I've that thought about that. The the outcome, the, the end goal. So I want to preface it a little bit by acknowledging a puzzle that artists face. So it's, um, I think, widely assumed in our culture that um, art and commerce are enemies. Mm. And that if you um, are thinking too much about your business model or um, commercial outcomes that you have sold out or that you're not being a true artist and these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I am totally comfortable just saying that's baloney. <laughs> uh, and I, I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like um, maybe it's nobody's fault, but I, I think what happened is that um, a generation ago, the, economic landscape was really different because uh, for composers, for example, um, your job kind of began and ended with writing the music. And then the, the marketplace was well enough to find that if you were writing music of a type that was appealing to a publisher, which maybe that's out of your control, but if you're doing that, then the publisher would pick up the next steps and, and, there was this ecosystem that worked in this. You can see this in the record industry where, um, you know, for at the rise of the record industry up until digital, um, you had this little ecosystem that basically worked. You put an artist in, they make the music, the thing turns into a little uh, round disc that you sell to people who want little round discs. Mm -hmm. And, it just it uh, you can say all you want about the um, the system being rigged against artists and this that the other thing, but the point is that it what there was an economic ecosystem, and that all changed. That it fell fell to pieces with digital, and so the record industry, as one example, had to refashion itself into an artist services business that uh, an artist service streaming business. All of their revenue streams got uh, turned upside down, and the relationships and contractual landscape um, had to be completely rethought. And um, only the ones that had their eyes on outcomes survived, and not even all of those survived. Mm -hmm. And I think that the 
you know, the, the creative world is not that much different is that the people who want to make great art, but don't want to pay, don't want to think about paying their bills with it, live in sort of one environment, which is totally cool. People who want to make great art according to high artistic ideals and also would like the satisfaction of seeing it survive in the marketplace and see some benefit from it, then you kind of have to win two games simultaneously. And these days you have to do it without a lot of the um, support ecosystem that existed previously. And so when I think about outcomes, I have to talk in two different languages simultaneously. Um, and that's what really is required of creatives because I have to talk in aesthetic terms which sound like so touchy-feely and artsy-fartsy. Um, you know, I want to be writing exquisite choral music that is, uh, you know, or harmonically rich and built from independent singable lines <laughs> and makes good use of the years of study I've put into counterpoint and harmony and all the rest. And that's a really um, aesthetic theoretical kind of conversation that I basically have to have with myself all the time. Uh, then in parallel, I have to have this conversation about dollars and cents and what does the business model canvas look like? What is the revenue side? What is the expense side? And how do you make sure that the revenue is greater than the expense over time? And that basically requires wearing two different hats all the time and, and speaking two different languages. And so in terms of outcomes, I have aesthetic outcomes, which basically is I want to see myself on a path of continual learning and excellence. I can't, I'm not going to say I want to be the next so-and-so. I want to whatever. I just want to develop and use my own voice by grounding myself as deeply in the craft of music making as I can. It's a personal journey. On the business model side of things, I want a deep catalog of choral and orchestral music that ensembles throughout the country, throughout Europe, and all the places where this action is happening program on a regular basis. Because when you're in, in my line of work, you have front money, which is commissions. And I want those numbers to go up over time. You have licensing, which is when people play your music and you get licensing for it. And I want those numbers to go up over time. Mm -hmm. And you have sales, which is the sale of things like sheet music. And I want those numbers to go up over time. Yeah. And I don't want these things for crass reasons that mean I'm selling out and uh, you know, writing show tunes. I want to be writing sort of serious concert music and stuff that's at the highest level of craft. But I also want the satisfaction of those outcomes. And I think that you, know, you can't always have both, but I think it's possible. I think it's possible if you focus on it. Because wherever <laughs> you focus is where your energy goes, right? If all of your time is spent on uh, the aesthetic or the artistic side, then that's where all your energy is going by default, I think. 
And so just by shifting a little bit of that focus every week, for example, to the business side so that you check in and see what's going on and are things moving up the way that you wanted them to, that's when things start to go the way we want them, right? I think. Um, I have one follow-up question that I kind of want to dive a little bit on because I think it's important when you talk about being on a path of continual learning and excellence. That sounds amazing, but I feel like just hearing that, I I think that could be a source of immense fulfillment and and excitement and drive and motivation and inspiration to do the work, but it could also be a source of crushing failure and like whether or not you're succeeding. And it all comes down to whether or how you decide you measure whether you're making progress, whether you are continually learning and achieving new levels of excellence. So I'm curious for you, Andrew, how do you measure that in a way that helps you rather than hinders you because it's putting you into a deep funk because you're not at XYZ level of excellence yet? Right. So I think there's uh, there's two levels. There's measurement and then there's um, sort of the internal storytelling. Mm-hmm. So on the business side of things, um, you're dealing in quantities that are a little bit easier to measure. Like I can look at the size of my email list and there's an integer. <laughs> <laughs> and I can tell if that integer is bigger than it was two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, I can look at my ASCAP statements and I can see a number with a dollar sign and I know mm-hmm. if it's going up. And, and so it's convenient um, that those things are easier to measure. It doesn't always tell you, therefore, what should you do, but at least you have some data. On the on the artistic side of things, I think um, I've spent a lot of time sort of on interior work as an artist, trying to figure out what it means to be successful, to, to succeed. Um, and I'm at a place now where I'm very comfortable with the idea that my job is to focus on quantity. My job is to make things and that quality will take care of itself over time. And that's, I mean, that's not my original thinking. People can see those ideas in in the book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, and I recommend it. Um, But the reason I say that is that because it's difficult to measure the absolute quality of an artistic product, (laughs) you have to, you have to sort of look at it as um, steps along a journey. And I'll give you an example. I just finished writing a six-part motet, a vocal piece. And I got finished writing that. And I sat back after having kind of played through it and sung through it and making a demo of it. And I thought, that is cool. I just felt good because according to my own training and the hard work I've done learning my own discipline, I can tell that it's constructed better than anything I, I could have written even a year ago. Wow. And that feels great. That's just, that's the feeling of progress. And when I do a new orchestral piece and I conjure up some kind of really cool sound from the ensemble, it just feels good. And 
but I, but I don't, you know, and I like the, you know, I spend time playing other people's music. Like I play a lot of Bach and um, one way to experience that is always being demoralized because it's always deeper and more clever than anything that I write. <laughs> or I look at it and think how lucky I am to have this textbook about music composition that is full of so many cool tricks and every trick that I observe is something that I can then play with in whatever my next creation is, my next little step on the continuing journey of learning. Sounds super touchy feely, but I'm, I'm kind of in that place now where I just, it makes me feel comfortable as an artist. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that because I feel like I got some insights there and I'm hoping that those that are watching or listening to this later on will get some as well. Because I think when you get to a certain level, a decade or 15 years into a creative artistic pursuit, you kind of have to get to a point where you're okay with all that stuff that's going on in your head, right? Or else it leads you to the the negative things that we sometimes see with artists and creative people where they turn to ways to turn that off because it's too hard to deal with. And so it's it's cool to see that you've found a way for yourself to be able to wrangle that in a way that you can keep making that that progress, that incremental progress every day. And that's the that's that's the whole job, right? If you're an artist or creative, that's the job is to get better every day. And if you want to get more better every day, you can dedicate more time or go get training or go take more classes or get more degrees or whatever it ends up being studying with certain people. I know you've done things like that to improve your craft um, in a very methodical way. But I feel like it's a really important thing for people to hear that like, this is what professional artists do is they wrangle with the same things that those that are feeling like they can't even get started because of all this stuff going on in their head. We still wrangle with it 15 years in and that part doesn't go away. That that's part of the artist's way too, right? Like it's a, it's a process. Yeah. Well, I've heard people, I've heard writers say that almost the worst thing that can happen to a writer is to have a huge first book. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it creates these kind of impossible expectations about the second book. And I think that if you're, if you're focused on that <laughs> hugeness of the success, mm -hmm. um, it's a pathway to a lot of frustration and self-doubt. And even though you have to always keep one eye on the business model, always, it's kind of like you're keeping yourself in check because you can't let your, your business focus on concrete outcomes sabotage your ability to be free and inventive and patient as a creative person. And my, my, I think my experience has been and my observation has been that people who stay in it for the long game are head over and heels in love with the material. Like people that, uh, have a long life in music are the ones who are just absolutely in love with sound. Mm. And, um, you know, people who make it have long lives in literature or in writing of different kinds love words. Like you just never get tired 
of the game of making things with words. And so, you know, in music, you don't have words, but you have intervals, you have harmonies, you have clever strategies for making cool lines. And the, the more I spend time with Bach, for example, the more I just realize that that is an, a bottomless well. <laughs> and there's always something new and fun to discover and always something uh, more to fall in love with in the material of the art form itself. And I feel like if you can ground yourself from an outcomes perspective on the business model, but simultaneously just allow yourself to fall completely in love with the material and just just pursue it sort of with a childlike uh, fascination, then maybe you can keep both halves of your brain sane as you lean forward. Very cool. I know you and I could talk about this kind of stuff all day, <laughs> but I want to quickly transition because I've been listening as you've been talking about your business and your craft. Um, I'd like to shift over to the next part of the conversation, which is what can we get you a breakthrough on when it comes to either your creative life, your work or your business? Because I feel like there's some things we can talk about and discover, uncover for you that might help with the problems that you're working on right now. Oh, sure. Well, I love thinking out loud and <laughs> <Me> um, <laughs> conversations that we've had and that I have with uh, similarly clever friends are always uh, useful because they just kind of, sometimes they simmer in the back and then it's two months later and it, and you have that thought and like, ah, that's what I've been waiting for. Exactly. The, the puzzle that I want to solve, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's an app for this, but uh, the, the thing that I have noticed is it's common for people to have favorite authors. And you look, living authors, and you look forward to buying the next book when it comes out. People who like books oftentimes have favorite authors. It's not that, that's not weird. That's normal. Uh, but it's not common, I think, for people to have favorite living composers. They don't have that same relationship concept with a composer as they do with an author. If I were to look on the bookshelf over here, I would say out of earshot that my wife has a special relationship with JK Rowling. We have so <laughs> many books, uh, not to mention all of the Robert Galbraith books that she wrote under a pseudonym. That it's clearly a favorite author. It's a privileged relationship that results in a transaction that just shows that there's value attached to it. And composers are in a tricky spot because we make stuff just like authors do. But when you buy a book, you're reading English words left to right. You don't buy a score for that cool piece that you hear and you're not sitting there reading a score what you kind what you do especially now is you find a piece that you like on apple music or on spotify or whatever and you add it to a playlist and you listen to it and you like it but because you're just streaming the content you're not paying for it directly you don't have this like transactional relationship with the person whose name is on the object, even if it came via a publisher and a retailer or whatever. 
and I don't I don't think it would be impossible to say have ten or twenty thousand people say, oh yeah, Andrew Maxfield. I love choral music. I love his choral music. He's my favorite living composer of choral music or a favorite 40 year old living composer with choral music with yellow glasses or whatever it is. <laughs> but to have that sort of special relationship with the, the end user to the point that um, we, they would say, oh yes, and here are the things that I've bought from Andrew Maxfield because I like what he does. Authors have a different kind of marketplace and economy than composers do. And I'd like to learn how to build that for a composer. That is a very interesting thing to tackle. So I'm excited to dive in way out of what I thought was possible in this conversation. So that's exciting for me because it's uh, part of why <laughs> I decided on this format and this structure for the podcast is I want to be challenged. I don't want to just go through a list of questions and then say thanks at the end. Like, I want there to be a little bit of uh, stakes and potential for failure, but I don't think I'm going to fail here. Um, and we're going to work on this together. So I'm excited to do that. Um, a couple of questions. I've, I've been taking notes and writing down as you were speaking to make sure that I was really listening and capturing what I was hearing. Um, the Going back to a question I asked earlier, is the outcome to have more dollars, more relationships with fans, more X, Y, or Z. Like what's the out when you're talking just about this, what we, you were just talking about having these relationships with the end user. And I don't like user, but like the listener, um, the person who's ultimately hearing the music, what's the actual outcome that you're after? Is it a monetary thing, a relationship thing, an emotional thing? What, what is it for you that you're really going for here? Well, I see it from a business model perspective. I see it as trying to build a particular kind of funnel. You know, they talk about marketing funnels, right? And the idea with a funnel is that you put in a large number of people who are interested enough in what you're doing to raise their hands and join an email list or whatever. And then the funnel gets narrower to the point that there's a smaller number of people who want to actually buy something from you. And I don't think composers think like this. No. And <laughs> if there are some who think like this, I haven't met them and I've <laughs> met quite a few. And the problem is kind of twofold. One is that um, that funnel mentality is, typically isn't there mentality and uh, structure. So for example, I have an email list with a couple thousand people on it. That needs to go up. That needs to grow. The absolute number of people in the email list needs to increase. So there's a funnel structure and sensibility. But then there's also I want, I want a product to sensibility. For one second there because why does it need to go up? What's what is the, that going up result in for you? Because I don't think well, it's Well, it results either. in the far end. Okay, so the story I'm telling myself is that on the far end, if the number up here is bigger, then opportunities 
to engage in transactions that result in dollars also goes up. It, like the, I, there's the different nodes along the, the filter, right? So instead of a, I'd like to 10x the number of people in my email list. And then further down the funnel, there's the product problem. And this is the thing that is the puzzle for composers because we don't have books to sell. And we don't even really have albums to sell anymore because people are out of the habit of buying albums. Like I sold 3,000 copies of my last choral album, which was great. I mean, that, for choral music, that's pretty yeah. good. Um, <laughs> but the point is that the, you know, the number of people who are buying those physical objects that have margin in them are going by the wayside. And so I ask myself, what is it that these people who are interested enough in my music to listen to a lot of it, what is it that they would be willing to pay for? Okay. When I, I'm curious if there is possibly a disconnect between the audience that you think you need to build and the people that actually pay you for something. So who actually gives you money? How do you, who are you selling to? Who is the customer? Well, there's different audiences and that's, that's part of the coordination challenge or the strategy. So one audience is um, ensemble directors that make programming decisions. Because when I have a choral piece that does well, it does well because lots and lots of choral directors, and they could be community, they could be uh, professional choirs, collegiate choirs, high school choirs, they are saying, I like that piece. I'm going to buy lots of copies of sheet music for all of the people that sing. Mm -hmm. So I have one audience of ensemble directors or artistic directors, artistic administrators that make programming choices. And they have a special type of messaging that's about programming. Mm -hmm. The people that have bought albums from me are a totally different category. I mean, it's not mutually exclusive, but they're, they're, you know, there's a little overlap in the Venn diagram. But by and large, the people who buy albums are just buying them because they like the music or they like the idea of the album or whatever. And um, they are spread out wildly, geographically, primarily in the US and in Europe. Um, I, they vary in their interest in what I do. Some of them just wanted to buy an album and be done with it, not have another relationship, which is fine. That's normal. Other people um, are really excited when I send out email newsletters and they reply and um, they are engaged and interested people. And I think given the right opportunities would be excited about supporting what I do. Awesome. I think that's an important thing to kind of have for context is that you have these two different audiences that are not, in my mind, part of the same, as you call it, a funnel, the same marketing funnel, mm -hmm. right? Because there's different outcomes for each one. One is, even though you're selling or the ultimate goal is a transaction between the two, the way that you attract and engage with and ultimately sell to these two separate groups of people, in my mind, requires two very separate approaches. And 
and even segmenting them into two separate audiences. Now there's ways, obviously, whether email marketing is a very easy way to set this up where you could say, look, everybody's coming into my email list, but when they come in because they were interested as an ensemble director in my sheet music, they're going to get automated emails that will lead to some sales specific for ensemble directors. Whereas if they come into it as someone who just purchased from your website an album, they're going to get a different automated sequence that says, here's more of my music and here's how you can listen to me on Spotify or on Apple Music or how you can buy sheet music so you can play it yourself or whatever it may be. It's a completely different part of that uh, funnel or that journey for that customer. And I think there's possibly a breakthrough to have be had there just by saying, if I treat these two as very different audiences, and there's going to be some overlap. Some of your ensemble directors are definitely going to be buying your music, and that's okay if they're in both of those audiences within your email list. But if your goal is to optimize for this sort of relationship where you're top of mind when people think of whether it's listening to or purchasing choral music or ensemble music or um, like listening to the music itself or purchasing the sheet music to be performed, then you can create what a lot of people refer to as either true fans or rabid fans or super fans who feel that way about you, who are just like 100%, I feel like the best composer out there is Andrew Maxfield because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And a lot of those reasons are because of the way that you interact with them and keep engaging them over time. Um, one of the things that I've loved hearing about and learning about over the last few years as I've been diving into marketing and stuff for creatives is this idea of providing a bunch of value up front where hmm. you're going you're gonna to do the work and provide the, the experience and the opportunity to to listen to your music and to engage with you before a transaction has ever occurred. So the ways you do that are finding people and giving them free stuff. Here's how to listen to this thing. Here's a sneak preview from a recording from a performance from this other group, right? So that your music is out there so that people can engage with you before they ever have to buy something from you. They can, you can increase that awareness, which is kind of that top of funnel thing that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think I would like to dive into, you mentioned, I don't know if there's an app for that. Well, surprise there is. And thank you if that was a tee up, uh, intentionally, <laughs> but I'm going to pull it up here, um, on our screen. So you should be able to see that on your end. And this is the benchmark app. And there's two areas where I think you could focus that I think are going to be helpful. So one of these is the marketing section where you can keep track of the, the activities that you're doing that lead to the desired result that you're after. So one thing in particular, like there's a whole section for content marketing. And I'm not just showing you this because by looking at it, it helps you. It doesn't just by looking at it. <laughs> you have to actually come in here and use it as a tool. And so say we're looking at the month of October and it's the week of the 19th, right? 
Um, if you were to focus specifically on one of these audiences, um, let's say ensemble directors, because maybe an ensemble director, if you can get one of those, it equals $1,000 in sales of your sheet music, where if, if you get one new audience member, that's maybe $10 from buying an album, right? So if revenue and engaging with the ensemble directors is a focus, then let's use that as an example. You could come in here and in very short order, once a week, you could come in and spend five minutes saying, all right, I the way that I reach out to my audience in and in, in a way of expanding that audience is creating things like videos and writing and blog posts and emails and things like that. So maybe over the course of a week, you did one thing per day, Monday through Friday. So you did five um, blogs or posts, right? And you went in and did a little bit of tracking and said, out of those five posts, I got 600 views, which led to 18 new subscribers to my email list. And that resulted in one sale right? In a very short order, just by going through and saying, okay, my, you know, you look at the data from your blog, from your email list, from your YouTube channel, and you say, this is how many things I posted. This is how many views I got, which led to this many subscribers and this many sales. Then it gives you a very clear path to um, the actions you can take to increase the desired outcome. And that was kind of a businessy way of saying how to get more of what you want, which is more of these relationships and more of these sales. Because question for you, if you were to get a thousand more ensemble directors on your email list, engaging with you, having conversations with you, but none of them purchased, none of them ever bought sheet music, is that a desirable outcome for you and your business? Um. I mean, it, it feels like the answer is no, but on the other hand, it's hard. That's hard to say because um, mm -hmm. the the reality and the, the the one thing that I'm noticing as I look at the spreadsheet is that there's a wild time lag between when people engage the first time mm -hmm. and when they actually purchase. And sometimes I don't know until I get statements from publishers. 12 months later. And so on the surface, I, I would say, oh man, I've got, you know, a thousand emails of dead weight on my <laughs> email list. But then 12 months later, when I get asked cap statements or more checks from publishers, I'd say, I'm so glad I had what I thought was was a thousand mm -hmm. emails of dead weight on my email list. Yeah. And in a way, I feel like there's no such thing as dead weight unless the cost of carrying those emails and whatever in MailChimp or whatever becomes um, counterproductive. That's the thing that I'm, I'm puzzling over this because what I do like is tracking the inputs since those are completely in my control mm -hmm. um, and holding myself to a content schedule effectively. Um, being deliberate about paying attention to what pieces get get responses and views. Mm -hmm. um, I have a good sense for the numbers of new followers, but even putting them down, make, putting them down in the spreadsheet, for example, makes sense. The thing that isn't obvious is the actual 
um, like a revenue per content unit. That's I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm it, that's a good um, that's a provocative idea, and seeing how it actually translates into my own um, business model and practice is is kind of another another conversation. I think. Yeah, but I think you nailed it, which is by tracking and affecting the things that you can actually control and mm -hmm. monitoring if the outcomes, the desired outcomes occur, then that is how you daily, weekly, monthly, annually grow your business by putting actual effort into the things that you can control. And I think yeah. if we yeah. use the broader musician category, right? A lot mm -hmm. of times, I'm sure you've seen it as well, but I've seen it with a, you know, a 10 year uh, career in doing live sound and touring with bands and and being involved with musicians that a lot of times the uh, as soon as they get a record deal or a manager or an agent or representation of some sort, they then slough off all of those things to them and say, well, the results are completely dependent on whether that person or that organization does their job. And they let go of this responsibility and the accountability for, for getting the results that they want in their business without realizing that they have the ability to do that. And so one of the things right. that's important in these scenarios where you know, maybe it's not so direct as this email equaled five sales because you might not be able to track it because they're going to a different website to purchase or they're not clicking on a link, they're making a phone call or visiting another website. So I wonder, just right there, I wonder if there's ways to add in some of that data tracking into your emails so that when you have an email that says, hey, I've got a new choral piece out and here's where you can get the sheet music, you can track how many people actually clicked on that link. You may not be able to see purchases, yeah. but at least you can say, wow, I am affecting the number of clicks every week because I'm doing a better job tracking it. Or maybe it's doing a call to action that's a little bit stronger of go purchase the sheet music here with a very clear link so that people go, oh, I can go buy it right now, right? Um, so there's this, the, the reason I bring this up, the reason I show it to you, I think you get it. It's because if we're not tracking it, then we don't know if the actions that we're taking on a daily basis to try to get those outcomes are actually having any effect. Right. And that feels a little bit like walking around in the dark looking for the light switch, right? We don't know if we're headed in the right direction. We don't know what obstacles lie in our way. We don't know if we're getting, you know, hotter, colder. <laughs> and if the desired outcome is to get out of the room, then, well, we need to get that light switch turned on so that we have a little bit better clarity on where we are, where we're going, and how to get there. So something like that I feel like could be a really helpful way to start seeing if X, Y, or Z action taken on a regular basis leads to the desired outcome of more people joining your email list, more people engaging with you that way, and then more sales which I think are kind of, you take all three of those together and that's kind of the desired outcome that I gather is what you're after. Yeah, I think the, 
the puzzle for people in the arts is that, um, I mean, I always sort of make fun of consumer packaged goods. Like if, if I was selling deodorant, mm -hmm. what I would do is I'd have a focus group and I'd test the price and product and, uh, positioning and then once the numbers add up you push it into retail and there's kind of a if you put this in then you get this out thing it feels I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify here but there's there's a there's an existing market for deodorant and uh to a certain extent you can describe sort of a simple machine of deodorant sales in the arts nobody needs what I'm making like they need deodorant and the, the um, decision-making process um, about what stuff we listen to is idiosyncratic. It's hard to predict. And so it feels like you, you put something in and then you get any number of, you know, possible outcomes out and you have to find some way to build a, a reliable business model around that. And, and so I think what I, I say that because it's, you, you know, it's, it's complex, but what I, what I like about what you're saying and showing is that the stuff that's in my control, sort of the inputs into that spaghetti string theory mess <laughs> is um, that's the stuff that I can do a better job tracking and being rigorous about. And then seeing if we can draw connecting dots between saying, okay, well, I grew this list with this particular segment, this audience, mm -hmm. and it wasn't immediate, but here's what came out. And I think I can draw a connecting line between the two of those things. And the other thing about tracking data like this, which those two words combined and you put them in front of an artist, they kind of want to regurgitate or like throw up. <laughs> like. Tracking data in a spreadsheet, yeah, that's not what we do, right? But what, I, what I'm hoping to show and hoping to build with this tool is that you can do it in a way that isn't painful, that gives you the kind of clarity and control you want over the parts of your business you have control over. But you do that for a month, two months, three months, and all of a sudden, you might start seeing those initial efforts three months ago are showing up. So you're still capturing the data. It just may be that your business model is not a immediate transaction. But I just read in the last few months of doing research and learning about all this stuff um, was that in a lot of businesses, I can't say specifically for yours or for mine, but there was data that was captured where it said in businesses, 85% of the purchases came after 90 days. So 15% were happening initially or within, you know, for a couple of weeks of an initial interaction. So there's some engagement. First, there's awareness, right? They find out that you exist. Like somebody's out there and has no idea that Andrew Maxfield is a person. They find out that not only is Andrew Maxfield a person, I didn't an even incredible know. composer, and they find out about you. They hear your music. They want to learn more, and then they engage with you. They sign up for an email list or they follow you on social media somehow. And it might be a journey that's months or even years until they become a customer. But if we don't, like you said, if we don't front load our effort there and we're trying to reach more people, 
then without that pull into your world where you're saying, hey, you've heard about me now, come engage with me, get on my email list, get a free download of some choral music, get whatever it is that pulls them in and gives you a more direct way of contacting them. So it's not you're hoping that they see your next Instagram post. Um, You have a much more direct path to contacting them. And then you nurture that relationship over months because you care about your art and sharing it with people and and putting it out in the world, then at some point you're going to start capturing much more of that 85% after 90 days because you're thinking more long-term than, well, they heard me on Spotify and they didn't buy an album, so screw them, right? (laughs) So there's kind of the overview. And the great part about this is I'm going to send you a free copy so that you get this tool and it also comes with a whole bunch of free training so that you can start using it for your own business and focusing on the things that are going to get you the outcomes that you want for your business. So in my mind, one of the bigger things, and this might not be a breakthrough for you, but it is kind of for me, is realizing you've got two separate audiences that need to kind of be dealt with and engaged with very differently in order to get two very specific outcomes from those audiences. Yeah. So yeah. No, that's for a you, good reminder. There's a lot of work to do there. Yeah. What's um, a takeaway for you that came from this conversation? And if the answer is really nothing, then you can tell me that too, because I need to know. But I'm curious if there's any insights that you're able to get out of this little bit of conversation today. Well, like I said at the beginning, the and as you know, being in a, creative business means that you're in a constant state of juggling and the pandemic hasn't simplified anything, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but this conversation is a reminder to me about attending to those two different segments and growing them by chat, by deliberately tracking the inputs that I, that are within my control, the, the nature of the business through publishers, through performing rights organization, through all this kind of things, it makes some of it harder to measure, but I can, I can be accountable for my inputs. And I think that taking a step back and owning that more deliberately is something that's within my reach. And that's a good takeaway for sure. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. I I am going to um, send this off to you and make sure you get a copy of it. But I feel like there's another great resource when it comes to email marketing. I've kind of alluded to some of these things like automated email sequences and segmenting and stuff. And those may or may not be things you're familiar with. And for you and the audience, I'll put a link in the show notes um, to some free training, not created by me, but it's from my favorite course creator, uh, online, which is Andre Chaperone with tiny little businesses. And his whole businesses are built around email lists. And he does mm. the best job of anyone I know or have ever seen when it comes to not only list building, but using that list to constantly and frequently and over time capture much more of those 85% of people who aren't ready to buy within that first month or two. So I'll make sure to send you a link to that as well. Um, Andrew, That'd be great. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your time today. I know we're we just passed our hour mark, so I want to be 
able to let you get back to your life. But where can people find out more about you? Where can they listen to your music? Where can they buy your sheet music? Like, where would you like people to go check you out? I'm super easy to find andrewmaxfield.org. There's a store there and you can hear my music on all the streaming platforms. Awesome. And is it just Andrew Maxfield to look for? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I will make sure to get you that uh, copy of the app so that you can start using it as well as the free training. Um, a quick call to action for those listening and watching this episode of the podcast. If you want to get your own copy of the benchmark tool and the app that we were using today, you can just go to bnchmrk.app. That's benchmark without the vowels. And you can get a free copy, not, excuse me, not a free copy. You can get the free training that we've put together for artists and creatives and freelancers who this tool is built for, as well as get your own copy of the app. So thank you, Andrew. Have a great rest of your day. I'm sure we'll be talking soon because of the projects we're working on together already. But I really appreciate you coming on and giving uh, all of us your time today and engaging in this awesome conversation. Thanks a lot. Let's go solve all, all the gnarly puzzles. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to or watching today's episode. Once again, we remind you to go check out the free training we have for you at benchmark.app. That's B-N-C-H-M-R-K dot app. And learn more about this tool we've built to help people like you get control over the results of your business. Check it out today and get the free training at bnchmrk.app.